The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Coming back at you with the Wolf Pack or Carl the Sound Guy. <laughs> it's been a eventful morning. Carl's already screwed up once. Oh, the over-under on this was three. Four. Four. I'm still taking the over. We have a great show for you today. A little different than just your block and tackle, business in, business out. A real American war hero, in my opinion. I'm, I'm sure that makes him uncomfortable, as it would any war hero, but we have Matt Eversman with us. Matt is a partner at Eversman Advisory. Eversman Advisory is a veteran-owned and operated organization with a diverse range of strategic partners who develop employment initiatives. They train exceptionally talented men and women to be more competitive in the market. Matt is also co-author of two books with James Patterson. Yes, that James Patterson. Very, very big author and best-selling author of many books. What are they called, Carl? What are the books? Um, Fuck up number two. That- All right. <laughs> Matt's latest book, which he sent me an early copy of, and I'm very thankful for, is ER Nurses, True Stories of America's Greatest Unsung Heroes. They save our lives every day, and we never heard their stories. The life or death intensity on the working front lines of America's greatest unsung heroes. Matt's also been a part of Walk In My Combat Boots, True Stories of American Bravest Warriors. They're brutally honest stories, usually only shared among combat comrades in arms. We all know how it's tough to get somebody to talk about combat if you've not been there with them. This, this kind of gets you there. And voices of men and women who fought in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and rare eye-opening look into wearing a uniform, fighting in combat, losing friends and coming home, and what it's really like to come home. Matt has been featured in a 2018 documentary, Send Me, though in Carl's notes, it says 2108 PBS documentary. That's number three. So in the future, Matt will be in a documentary. (laughs) Send Me follows (laughs) as he returns to combat with the U.S. team of military and fights against ISIS and the Taliban. The film provides an insider's look at the lives and activity of U.S. military personnel stationed in far-flung outposts and overseas. I think what most people really know Matt for is the Battle of Mogadishu. First-hand accounts of men in Task Force Ranger, which was a book written with Dan Schilling. Matt Eversman, as many of you who have seen Black Hawk Down, was portrayed by Josh Hartnett who was kind of the heart and soul of that movie. And I really thought did a, did a great job. I, I think that whole movie was a wonderful movie. One I didn't go in with a lot of expectations and I came out just with a ton of respect. Thanks for joining us, Matt. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm sorry for all the listeners that had to listen to that, that introduction because 
Uh, you know, I'm just a knucklehead, but I really, I, I thank you for having me. And uh, it's cool to be here and to talk with, with really smart people about the state of business and the state of things. And uh, hey, man, we're, we're all on this side of the grass right now. And that's a good, good thing. Well, I'd love to have smart people for you to talk to, but you've got Carl and I, so we'll muddle through. And you are you are everything I expect. I kind of come from a military family. My stepfather retired a command sergeant major. I would expect you to be as humble as you are because he is too. But let's talk about the book. Since you sent me this book and I, I've never really seen anything first-hand accounts of ER nurses. And these are a collection of small stories, right? It's not about following one business or one person. What what brought you to write this story with James Patterson? Yeah. So I, I wish I could take a great credit for it, but th- this was literally uh, Jim Patterson's idea. And, uh, you know, backing up, we, uh, uh, in 30 seconds, we, we had been introduced by a mutual friend uh, down here in South Florida, right before I went to Afghanistan for this little documentary, and, and the whole reason we were together was to talk about how to, you know, how do you how do you tell stories? So go find the best storyteller in the world and see what he has to say. And so uh, Landis plane on the short runway. Uh, I got back after doing this little this little film for PBS, and uh, Jim called me up out of the blue. He says, "Hey, you know, I think we ought to do a book about soldiers. We ought to, you know, it's below the fold. We ought to introduce soldiers to the world." So you say yes, nod, Roger, I'll do it, which we'll get back to later. But anyway, uh, even as we were doing that uh, pre-COVID, Jim and I were just chatting, and he said, "You know, I, I think emergency room nurses. You know, he's like that. It's just a part of our, you know, it's a part of the doggone." you know, our cities and nobody really even thinks about it. Just that you go and you, you're, when you're broken and you come back. And I, at first I'm like, well, I mean, how many stories can you hear about life in the emergency room? But as it turns out, there's a lot, turns out a lot. There, there, there's an awful lot. And, uh, you know, it is Adele to Zeppelin. You, 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 you got it all. And uh, we really just found that it was um, startling what these men and women do day in, day out for however long their careers are. So I thought it was fascinating. It was a neat project. And uh, and I'm very pleased to say, and I'm sorry to be sort of a tool for saying it out loud, but I'm, I'm very pleased to say that we we made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. We're, we're very thankful for that. Cue the applause, Carl. <laughs> that, just, that, that's four. That is four. We are now at a push, Matt. We are now at a push. I took the over. Congratulations on being a bestseller. That's familiar territory for you. But you wouldn't think that like you could put out a book about a collection of stories of ER nurses and and within days it's a bestseller, but it really is a very good book. I I actually had the displeasure of reading it in an emergency room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in a hospital. And I, it I just looked around at these people in awe at what they had to deal with, not the least of which family members like myself who were were with a loved one. But the stories of life and death and how it affects you from the beginning and then how you're just desensitized to it in the end is sad. Yeah, it it really is. It it is. It's funny, not ha-ha funny. But when you were just saying that, I was thinking, you know, this is one of those head scratching moments too like when when soldiers at Walter Reed 
would tell me, yeah, we, we watched a movie last night. We watched Black Hawk Down. And I'm thinking, you showed this movie to people at Walter Reed that are recovering from wounded. But they, they, they you know, they're like, yeah. hey, I get it. And I young kid grandmother's like, oh, you know, my grandson's favorite movie is Black Hawk Down. He's 10. I'm like, my gosh, lady, this is, you know, it's violent. It's where I'm going with all this. You know, it's violent. It's rough. It's um you know, it is doggone unvarnished. And when you get to talk about nurses in the emergency room, you know, you can't paint the corner. You know, you, 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 you can't go across the outside of the plate. It is three things happen. You go in, you get fixed, you come out, you go in, you get kind of fixed, they send you up to ICU or you go in and you die. I mean, I not to sound cavalier, cheeky, but that's that's what happens. And somebody orchestrates that all the time. Those are three outcomes generally that, that that can happen but the, the stories in between like to me there there are there are a lot of stories about people who were in a traumatic situation kind of a blood and guts thing but then there's also like i think there was this nurse the the, the very first foley catheter that they ever had to put in was a a 400 pound guy covered in shit yeah i mean yeah. that's got that that's got to be as horrific as blood and guts right Oh, yeah. No, they, uh, it's just, as Jim said, you know, the other day, he said, you know, if, if you were asking me, I'm just pretending I'm Jim Patterson for a second. And if you ask me, you know, write a story kind of about the underbelly of America, you know, I wouldn't know where to begin. But after looking at this book, he's like, now I know, go to the ER. You'll, you'll see. Right. You see everything. You, ju- you, you just see it all. Like you just said, it's like, wow, man, how do you... How do you even how do you even how do you even begin to digest that? But these goods, these men and women do it. And I guess that's really at the they're angels among us. They really are. Yeah. My wife's mother was a ER nurse for almost 40 years. And you want to talk about battle hardened. Oh yeah. There there wasn't a part of an anatomy she hadn't seen a thousand times or any kind of malady. I think her old line is whenever she had six kids. Whenever any of them complained about anything, it, the first thing she'd say, did you go to the bathroom? That <laughs> <laughs> was like, you know, the, the old grandmother line, are you regular? Yeah. Did you put some tussin on it? Yeah. Did you put some tussin on it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I recommend the book. I've uh, honestly, I got halfway through it because I just, I, I couldn't read anymore from an ER room. What I did read of it just gave me a great amount of respect for the individuals that, that work in this. Not that I didn't have that based on my mother-in-law alone, but you should pick it up. It's ER Nurses, one of the most powerful books that you'll read all year. I know that because it says it right on the cover. <laughs> I, I know it's the, the, the trite question, the one that people always ask, but the, the process one. What, what was it like writing with, and by the way, Alex Cross, I do know what James Patterson wrote. You were on the computer, <laughs> silly. What was the process like with Patterson? I, I mean, I just kind of have this weird vision of him in a, a velvet robe, just kind of with a pipe, just walking around a, a, a library with all these leather-bound books, just kind of dictating out. Um, you know, <laughs> that's funny. That is good. Now, Jim, first of all, I preface it by saying Jim Patterson, is a, he's a neat guy. And, and I say that, you know, I meet a lot of people in the military. He's not what you would think you know, that the best-selling author in the world is like, he's very, very down to earth, very, uh, very much, um, I, I dare say a regular guy, you know, jeans and a, and a baseball cap is uh, generally the uniform he's in. Uh, but to, to answer the question, you know, the process, uh, 
You know, it started out with on my side of the the line was to to find these these nurses and um, you know do an interview. And uh, you know, once I got it, you know, you figure a sixty to ninety minute interview roughly comes out to about forty pages. Uh, then I read through it, and I'm giving myself more credit than I really deserve because my piece is pretty much monkey boy stuff. Uh, I read it, look through, and see what pieces are, are, are potentially interesting. And then I, you know, print it out, take it over to Jim's house, like the paper boy each week. And, you know, and then he starts working the magic. And what's fascinating, and I know it, it may sound very basic, but there's so much behind it, this idea that, you know, a guy could take a 40 page manuscript of someone's entire career and whittle it down to five or six pages of an opening that hooks you and, you know, four, five, six pages that keeps you engaged, and then you're done. And you feel like you've got this whole person's story by the by the scruff of its neck. I mean, it's really, it, even as I'm saying it, and this is about the millionth time I've said it, I'm really amazed at how he does it. Because if it was that easy, we'd all do it. And we'd all be, you know, bestsellers. But but it's not. It's it's the way he he does it. And I will say it's sort of this other stream of consciousness kind of a guy here. Like, I, I don't know how you see the world like that, but you see it in a much different way. And, uh, you know, God love him for it. I mean, that's what, he's, uh, that's what he is, you know, as they say, the man. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, he's done it all. And this is, this is very a different kind of departure from what he usually does, putting it in short stories. And it's yeah. nice to know that, you know, he's not that, well, that vividly homoerotic description that <laughs> Carl put out there. <laughs> that he's just a regular guy. <laughs> and, and Dan, if I could just, just I got to, I got to throw this out too, because this is something I learned about, you know, over the last couple of years of working with James Patterson is that, you know, if there's one mission the guy has in life, it is to get people to read. Yeah. And that's no no BS. I mean legitimately it is the uh, the idea that we we don't read enough, people need to read. Um we've been feeding them the wrong stories for you know sort of all of our lifetime. So this idea and the 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 example he gives and I think it's a good one for all of us to kind of marinate over um when we think about business and life but you know he's like I I want to I write kids books so that we when they get to the last page I want them to turn around to their mother or father and say, mom, dad, I, I'm ready for another one. It's like that, that's the idea, you know, and literacy and on and on. So not to get on the stump for Jim Patterson, but uh, I, I, I don't know that I was had any noble idea like that other than, hey, this would be kind of cool. This would be neat. These are stories that should be told. And yeah, I'm not, and, and it's a really cool thing. I mean, um, a chance introduction brings you to this, this kind of, full-time and part-time job next to your advisory of being an author with James Patterson. Who wouldn't want that? That's a pretty cool gig, right? It's, uh, I pinch myself. I do. I sit here every day and I think this is of all the gin joints, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of gin joints, um, Somalia. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, so I, I agree with a lot of the people who say Black Hawk Down is just one of the, one of the best movies put together following people on the ground i know it had to be 
really tough for you to watch for a couple of different reasons. One, your the movie is kind of based on your narrative that follows you as the lead protagonist through that whole event. And uh, there are so many things that you, because it comes at you so fast once it starts, right? Once, once you guys, once Orlando Bloom falls out of a helicopter, like it doesn't stop, which, right. you know, if it was Orlando Bloom, I'd be okay. But unfortunately, <laughs> it was your friend. And that had to be really tough for you to like kind of look back and see in the moment, right? Boom, he's gone. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's an interesting, um, you know, this whole movie world and being involved, you know, as the name that gets turned into a character is is absurd. It really is. And, uh, you know, I've had a couple of years now to kind of talk about it and digest it and think. I mean, the movie came out almost 20, literally 20 years ago. It came out December of 20. Of, yeah. Still holds up. 2001. Yeah, no, it's it, it's on the doggone like Showtime periodically. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, and I must admit, I, I've kind of seen it enough that I, I've, it's like, man, I can't watch this thing again. You know, I, I mean, every single one of your friends is like, hey, I'm waiting to see the movie with you, which yeah. is certainly flattering. But, you know, by about the 17th time, you're like, man, this is exhausting. Yeah. And for listeners, I, I'm seeing that. 20 years later, smiling, but they want to see it with you and like, ask you, did that really happen? Yeah. Kind of like yeah, I'm yeah, doing, yeah. except not watching it with you. Exactly. I guess that would be cool. But it's uh, so, so the, the short, the short answer is um, I was very fortunate to be uh, involved and I'm putting, you know, quotes on, on either side of that. Um, when they started doing the movie, I got invited out to, to read the first draft of the screenplay and and really get a, a walkthrough, talk through by Jerry Bruckheimer and Ridley Scott and Mark Bowden, how they were going to do this. And then uh, I got to go on the set in Morocco for, uh, you know, a week while they were filming. So I, I really had this opportunity to to kind of see it from inside, how how the story was going to go. And I think because you kind of know, I, I, I know how the ending is. I yeah, you were there. watch it sort of objectively and. Uh, uh, I, I agree with you. It's well done, even for a movie that's 20 years old with the technology right. that has changed throughout. You know, right. it's still a really good story. And I, my, my kind of closing comment, and I've said this to, you know, a million people, um, even after 20 years of war, you know, if you want to know what urban battle is like, watch Black Hawk Down. It's probably the best, yeah. um, the best visual of what it's like to fight, you know, in a built up area and, that's what our kids were doing in Fallujah. That's what they were doing in Baghdad. That's what they were doing in Kabul. And so it, it really was, um, it was well done. Yeah. I, it really, I mean, it was the urban battle of it. Like around every corner lies death. Yeah. That really hooked me. I, I guess I appreciate the movie making part of it. I mean, gosh, Ridley Scott, Mark Bowden. I mean, fantastic. I mean, I could have done without Michael Bay. I, I'm not sure <laughs> I, I ever needed to meet him, but. Or, or I guess you did, but they they're they're fantastic. Going going back to it, I mean, be, you know, me wanting to be that friend of yours in a room watching that movie with you. I guess everybody was only there for a couple of weeks. It's not like it's not like you had been there for a year developing relationships yourself. You did come in as kind of a heart and a soul and seeing 
the strife that people had to deal with, the, the abject poverty, and, and, and you felt for that. But at the same time, death lurked around every corner. And I guess you were there for like maybe two weeks before this operation. The whole unit was really the, the Rangers, right? Um, so we, it was uh, what they call in, in forgive me, because I've forgotten so much military doctrinal stuff. So anybody that's on active duty listening, I'm apologizing up front that I, I forgot the doctrine. But uh, we had what they call uh, um, like a joint special operations task force, just so diff. Yeah, that's what it was. So this was like uh, elements of Rangers, elements of SEALs, elements of Delta Force and elements of the aviation unit all put together for this mission. Because, you know, you got to plan for other contingencies around the world that just to not take you too far back on a history lesson, you know, at the time with the Clinton administration and the foreign policy that they had such that it was, <laughs> um, there was a very, very um, delicate, um, I had to, I'm trying to be, be, choose my words carefully, uh, you know, they didn't want to broadcast the wrong message that, you know, by sending a lot of guys over there to capture or kill this dude. So, you know, because yeah. this is happening in the in the middle of a humanitarian, you know, peacekeeping operation. Well, I think that gets <laughs> lost on people, too. That, that I mean, this was really over food, right? Yeah. No, listen, it was starvation, malnutrition, yeah. all the maladies of of life in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, in the 90s, uh, you know, in a failed state of a country um, that literally was. And a warlord stealing all the all the U.N. food coming in. Yep. I mean, it, it, literally that simple genocide, yeah. um, civil war and just sheer brutality by by these warlords uh, and basically terrorists. Yeah. A deed in in particular was yep. was the one you guys were after a couple of his top lieutenants and. Yeah, it struck me. You guys, you guys are, are, are there a couple of weeks. I mean, did you really get, get your own chalk because your, your leader went down with a seizure or something like right before? Yeah, that's one of those great Hollywood-isms yeah, um, where we, we put a couple of things together. Uh, we did have a soldier who uh, turns out had an epileptic seizure. Um, and it turns out he, the guy had, had hit. But he wasn't your, he wasn't your chalk leader. No, he, he had hidden that from, in his medical records somehow. And anyway, he seized up literally over there. And that was that. But my my boss, my chalk leader, Chris Hardy, he actually did get called home right before, like at the end of September for a Red Cross emergency, which, you know, no one, whoever thinks about that. But, you yeah. know, I mean, his mother had a, um, you know, a bad diagnosis and, you know, they're like, you, you got to get home. So. It wasn't through anything good that I did. It was just happened to be the next guy, you know, standing there. All right. So it wasn't it wasn't somebody having a seizure and going down, but it, but it, but the chalk leader did get sent out, and this this was your first yep. chalk leader mission. Yep. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and and I say this, you know, and I also got a um, preface this, and I'm sorry, it's going to drive you nuts, but you know, it, it's easy here we are 28 years later um, to, to, you know, to have a conversation like, like you and I are having Dan and, you know, the highs and the lows and ins and outs and smile and joke, um, you know, but I can tell you, you know, it's a really scary proposition. And, you know, you also got to make sure we're not making the fish story bigger or, or, or smaller sometimes than it was and try and be straight up the gut. But yeah, you know, this, well, I mean, that's, that's for the movie to do. I mean, I'm not, yeah. 
No, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I think that like uh, people people talking and hearing from you may maybe do want. I mean, look, that's still an amazing an amazing thing that like I mean, is this was was this the first time you had to fire your weapon in in uh, live combat? That day was the first for me. We had been in a couple wow. of firefights prior to, um, but interestingly enough, like I never. Uh, in my particular position, like I never saw anybody to shoot, which right. I guess is a good thing. Yeah. Um, you know, October 3rd, though, is the first time I did uh, that I had to shoot. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, I had to shoot a lot. But yeah, that was my first time as a, as a leader in combat. And, uh, you know, that's a big deal. And your first time shooting, shooting at live targets, shooting back at you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, and it's um, it is one of those. uh uh, it's a, it's an odd sensation. It's, 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 it is exciting in one sense. It's scary in one sense, but I tell you the funny thing, just as I'm, I'm standing here, kind of chatting, um, it wasn't paralyzing. Like you would think. No, your training kicks in, your training kicks in. I mean, it really wasn't, it, you, you would, I, I mean, I would have thought like, Oh my gosh, holy shit, they're shooting at me and stop. But it, it really was like, once you realize you know, you hear it, your senses come in, you, you know, you naturally get behind something that'll hopefully stop bullets. And you sit there and think, wow, man, like you spend a little bit of time. It's probably just a, a, a nanosecond thing. Like, so that's what it's really like. Um, <laughs> yeah. And again, it's not, it's, it's all of the above, but uh, the, the biggest thing I remember about it um, was that it just, it wasn't paralyzing. It, it wouldn't stop you in fear. Uh, and I, from all the guys I saw, I didn't see anybody. And again, that's not bravado. That's just no. It's just not what you would think. Um, no, I, I guess you'd you'd have that 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 one millisecond where you're like, did that motherfucker just shoot at me? Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh yeah. No, you, right. you do. It's you, on. It gets real personal real quick. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, you from the minute you rope down, you were dealing with a medical emergency. Yeah. I mean, in the open, not really having time to think about you know who's shooting at you. Everybody is. That's uh, that that's crazy. And you're talking about the ER book that you wrote. You you, I mean, you were involved in an ER incident, right, with Private Pilla, who had his femoral artery um, severed. Um, Hollywood stuff that really did happen, but it wasn't me. It was another real life sergeant that did that. Yeah, that was uh, yeah, artery was severed, and uh, actually, it was uh, it was Jamie Smith. Excuse me, it was Smith. Who, who's uh, they couldn't get a clamp in, so they had to do it by hand, which just you know. Oh my God! Brutal under fire. Even to this day, you think about it. But then again, you also like it's amazing. This is what twenty somethings do. Like that's what these these men and and women today do, and that's what they're capable. Of. They they they're they're magnificent creatures. These soldiers that that just do so much. Well, wait a minute. You were a twenty something when when that was done. I was. I was twenty six. Yeah, it's shocking. Now I got 26. I was, you know, still chewing on erasers and sniffing glue. Right, I mean, crazy. Right, which is exactly what 26 year olds do today. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I was asking. There's, there was one part of this where somebody had said we don't, we're not going to get the AC 130 gunship. Which, I mean, I know what that is, and I'm just wondering. What could an AC-130 gunship do in a densely populated area like that 
except eviscerate buildings? Um, shockingly, it has got a pretty good. Uh, it can it, put, it can put some pretty precise fire really down. Um, even in in 1993, um, you know, it had the technology to to put it put it down. And yeah, you could level you could level Mogadishu if if you really wanted to. Um, but I think tactically, it, it would provide tremendous, uh, very accurate. Uh, supporting fire, you know, like the convoys, we we could have cleared the streets, um, you know, cleared by fire. Literally, we could have um, protected. That would have been pretty indiscriminate, though, don't you think? I mean, that I mean, like you guys were pretty careful and, and it did happen. I mean, women and children got shot because there were there were thousands that were killed on, on the Somali side. But you put an AC-130 gunship clearing out a street. Everybody's dead. Um. Pretty much, you know, the in the, the the but comma is, um, <clears throat> for instance, at the crash site. Like, if you're running into the crash site and you're not wearing an American flag, you're a bad guy and yeah. you're going to die. You know, you're, we're going to we're going to we're going to send you to Never Never Land. And so that really, this ability to uh, protect those crash sites, you know, would have given us more time to. Uh, regroup and get better armor, you know, get the armor organized. But um, and listen, just to go out, we, we used to say, listen, even if they were just lobbing 105 rounds into the desert, you know, they're so doggone loud. I mean, that that literally would have had an effect, you know, on these uh, these people. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely an asset we should have had. It was uh, pretty criminal that we didn't. And um yeah, it could. I mean, who would should have could have? Who knows? But I, I would suggest it would have changed a lot of the outcome. It would have cleared out those broken down cars that they were and tires that were blocking your the convoy's exit for sure. Yeah, no, it, it would have, it would have done business. But no, they they. I mean, they're pretty precise. Like put targeted thirty millimeter rounds through windows instead of you know taking down the whole door or the, or the whole outside of a building. I mean, it's it's pretty spectacular. If you ever get a chance to go watch them shoot, you should. You probably do it over at Indian Town Gap. Or something. I've seen them shoot, and like, uh, there's nothing like seeing a uranium depleted round go through something because it does. Yes. It goes <laughs> through it. Pure kinetic energy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I, I I guess you really did need an AC-130 gunship. I mean, those little birds were very very cool with the Gatling guns and. They, they they could strike the top of a building. I see you shaking your head. Absolutely. I, I guess you were happy to hear them go overhead. Yeah, listen, I, I mean, that was the, you know, necessity of invention here. You know, those little birds and the Blackhawks just flying in orbits around with uh, the miniguns were, were, I mean, lifesavers. I mean, there's miniguns. Uh, they, they shoot 4,000 rounds a minute. Um, you know, six-barreled, electronically primed miniguns out of both sides. I mean, they're, they're just awesome. I mean, psychologically, it's such a – you get fired up that you're, no pun intended, you know, in the middle of a firefight, and all of a sudden you hear that that <sighs> whine of the miniguns come, oh and God. all of a sudden people stop shooting. You know, oh my God. people like bad guys stop shooting because they're just taking them out. It's, uh, it's incredible. The balls you have to have to be a Somali. To be out there, you know, that's a really great observation. And and I'm not trying to be a kiss ass when they say like, you know, because when people are like, oh, really good, Dan, but it, it really was for a Westerner. You know, we we run away from 
conflict. You know, we we leave as one does dangerous stuff as normal people do. Yeah, uh, they come out of the houses just to see what's up, and and you you you, you kind of get to figure out like who means business and means you harm, and who's just checking out. But at first, you think, holy shit, these people are are they are drawn. Yeah, to gunfire to the sound of gunfire, and, and you know you're like like women with their kids on their hip just. Walk out in the, literally while there's a firefight going on, looking around. You're like, holy mackerel, this is, you know, you don't see that every day. I mean, not in. Well, apparently they know. do, Matt, because yeah. uh, if, if they didn't, uh, I'm not sure they would they would be drawn to it. I, I, It seems like this was something extraordinary for all of them, but not in the sense that gunfire was going off. Maybe just a lot more than usual. And I, and I did when I watched it, I'm like, who are these guys no armor. I mean, shorts, T-shirts, and an AK-47 was pretty much standard operating procedure and equipment for them. Running into a military buzzsaw. And they did. Yep. Thousands of them. I I tell you, again, another one of those ones for Ripley. But, um, you, you, you know, this is a country that they don't know any. They, they don't know any different. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's what they talk about, you know, them all high on cot, which is, is true as well. Um, but they're, they're, they're pretty much fearless. And, you know, as I've since done a, a little bit of study about Somali, I mean, I didn't know anything about it going in, but afterwards, and, you know, they've, they've, they've been like this for millennia and, you know, they, they, they sell camels, chase Somali women and like to fight. That's what one of the CIA guys said. That's what happens in, not in necessarily Mogadishu. in that order. Exactly. But that is that is it. Um, but they fight. They're not a, they, 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 they know nothing other than fighting. So, and uh, again, you would think this intimidating force of Americans, the best of the best, would come in and this ragtag group of militiamen would would leave. But they, they wouldn't. They'll, they'll stay and fight as poorly trained and armed as they were. Bro, you, <laughs> you were no different than anybody over a thousand years coming in there and, and, and killing these people, I guess. I mean, between the, I mean, even the Crusades affected that to some degree, right? They, they were, they, they're now predominantly and were then a Islamic state, which I'm sure didn't make them feel very good about a Christian army coming in and shooting at them on, on just a base level, right? Where you can get the non-educated to fight for a reason, but they're, they're used to that, right? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's. I mean, it's their trade. That that that's it's just what I think that somebody said. You know, there's a famous Somali, whoever that may have been, that said, you know, we've always we push the invaders into the ocean. You know, that's what we do, and uh, um, they they basically have no no thought of capitulation, no thought of um, truces, no thought of anything. I mean, listen, when you start dealing with these clans, it's just like what we've seen in Afghanistan. I mean. They'll, they'll, they just they shouldn't surprise anyone, uh, you know, about how they behaved, how they they believe their views on life. You know, this idea that, you know, a child dies is kind of eh, it happens, but an elder dies like, you know, horrible, like all that wisdom and everything is gone. And uh, wow. again, for a Westerner and I keep going back to sound smarter than I am, but this, this it's, it's it's anathema to everything any of us have been taught growing up here in the United States. Just that behavior is just, 
I mean, it's just not, it's not ours. It's just not the way we see it. It's, we value life in general, except in some places like Baltimore, but um, you know, it's uh it is amazing. I told you, bro. Uh, you, you're not going to one-up me. I'm from Flint. I uh, know. It, it, it's like the battle of the, the hoods. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, even to here to a degree, go the other way. Eight-year-olds are getting arrested for fighting on the playground. So I'm not sure that happens in Somalia even today. I, I know they're a little further ahead than they were 20 years ago, but not so much, I think. So, Carl, you, you had a question? Yeah, I mean, it... it kind of listening to it and kind of digesting it afterwards it in the way you described the the their run towards the fight it, it seems to me that it didn't matter who it was it's there's there's that action they're going to run forward and in in that tribal mentality that's their spot to to win honor or renowned or or advance their place within that that grouping so i, I don't even i would probably say a percentage of them didn't even know they were running towards the Americans. They were just running towards a fight and like, just shoot. And it just happened that they saw the Americans on the other side. I think they knew they were Americans. What do you think? What do you think, Matt? Uh, I think that there was probably a little, a little split of both. I think there's probably, and I'm no tribe expert, but my suspicion is, you know, listen, anything you do to gain favor, gains favor, uh, you know, it's going to be good when, there's food or money on the other end of the, the you know, that transaction. But uh, they also, listen, it was very obvious, you know, for the time we had been, from the time we got there, you know, there was a group of Somalis and it was almost like there was a demilitarized zone. You know, you would fly over or do a foot patrol and families would come out genuinely happy right. to see the Americans there, you know, because they knew that we were going to, you know, provide some some comfort, provide relief was actually the name of the, the operation, um, this U.S. peacekeeping piece. And then you would cross over literally this invisible line and these kids would come out and throw rocks at you, you know, and women would. Bacara market <laughs> would just give you, you know, yeah. the finger and they'd pretend to be shooting at you. And you think, like, how 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 is this? So I, I think there was a group that was always ready to go fight Americans. And there was also just the loyalists would be my guests that are better here. I, I got to think everybody probably knew that who was who in that zoo. Yeah, I think they did too. That's that's screw up number five, Carl. I won the over. <laughs> uh, you know, they, I think they did a good job in the movie of showing what you just said, Matt, in that like one, there's, there's, there's humanity. There are humans on each side, you know, the, there's that, that really impactful scene where one of the soldiers is running through a home, slips out the back door and a Somali son kills his father um, and friendly fire kind of a thing. And just is devastated by it. I don't know if that really happened or not, but it could. And then when you're saying there, there were some there that really wanted you there, you kind of saw that in the last mile of your run back to the stadium where you'd crossed over some point and then people were cheering mm -hmm. the soldiers. Were, I, don't, I don't know if you actually ran in, ran out of there with the rest of them or is that Hollywood? But some people ran out, right? Yeah, no, I did not. I got out on a vehicle, but some guys, there was a, um, you know, a dozen or so, I think, if I recall that, that wound up literally running behind the vehicles to get out, which we laugh about now, but it wasn't very funny at the time. Oh, I would not have been laughing. <laughs> but it was, it, it was just as you described. Uh, the same, like I just said, you know, you drive and then all of a sudden they would just stop. 
the firing would stop. Everything would would just be, uh, you know, peaceful is not the word, but comparatively speaking, it would have been, it was like, wow, this is this is really crazy. No one's no one's shooting, and you're just sort of looking around like, I, I can't believe that after a, you know, being in this you know, this really intense gunfight, um, all of a sudden it's just like it just stopped. Yeah, uh, it's, it's indescribable, actually. It's crazy. <laughs> How far do those guys have to run? Those dozen guys or so. I mean, I think, you know, they call it the Mogadishu mile, but I, I think it was about 800 meters. From the crash site to the to the stadium. Yeah. You guys all night long couldn't make it 800 meters from the crash site to the stadium. That's how much fire you were under. Yeah, we couldn't get the, the vehicles in. And plus, we had to take the helicopter apart to get the bodies out which takes a lot of time, you know, cutting through Kevlar. I mean, by my count, that took like five hours. Uh, the, the, t- the 10th Mountain got there about 11.30 p.m., and you guys were kind of running out of there, gathered out of there around 5 a.m. I mean, look, I don't know if this is Hollywood or whatever what, from what I saw, but. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I have to look at the timeline. I, I, I can't remember exactly. But I just know that extricating the bodies of the pilots um was that 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 was really the holdup um just didn't have the tools to to cut through the kevlar and everything and remember i mean the the nose of this this black hawk folded over the 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 cockpit and um you know almost like trying to cut it apart by hand basically is what they did the movie closed with kind of like you, your your character giving like kind of this this speech and it was talking about did anything change? And it was, you know, nothing changed in the situation, but it changed the people, people that were there. And, and I, 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 you know, 28 years later, we look at how we kind of exited Afghanistan and nothing changed there. I mean, the, the same kind of deal. It's, it's the same group is in charge. And, you know, from, from kind of your perspective, having gone through, you know, that, how did you kind of feel when we exited Afghanistan the way we did? Oh, it's brutal. I mean, it, it, it's just a, it, it's a knife in the back. It's a kick to the shins, it, you know, fill in the blank, whichever you want to use. But uh, uh, there's no delicate way to say it. I mean, it just, it's painful. Uh, like, what in the fuck are we doing? You know, when you got to come home and talk to a 23-year-old widow and explain why her husband died, you know, on a foreign land doing you know, a mission that is supporting the, you know, the, the, the national mission, our, our, our grand strategy, only to have it completely just pulled out from under you and we're changing, you know, we're, we're changing direction. Whether we're talking about Mogadishu and Somalia in 1993 or, you know, Afghanistan. Hey, look, why, we can't do it forever. I got it. I understand that. But, um, you know, just such a nothing change. You're exactly right, Carl. 100% nothing change other than now the Chinese have a, a great sandbox to play in and mine in and opium's going to run rampant and we've got a vacuum for bad guys. And yeah, no, it's going to be a shit show and uh, we'll, we'll be back there someday in the probably not too distant future, uh, walking back over sand that has American blood on it. And that's going to just fucking, pardon my language, but that that's just going to be- yeah, we're offended. Uh, brutal. Uh I, I, you know, I totally agree. And it, it seems like these things are all kind of negotiated on terms that we say we don't negotiate on. I mean, you you look at 
the pilot Durant who was captured, right? And he's like, they're not going to negotiate for my release yet. He's released two weeks later and we leave two weeks later. It's hard to believe that those two things didn't coincide, that we kind of negotiated with the deed to release Durant because we weren't, I mean, the horrific images of Stugart and Gary Gordon. Gordon, yep. Yeah. And it's not like it is today. They, they briefly, I think, showed it like maybe one or two times on the news and, and mentioned it. I mean, Clinton didn't want to talk about that at all. But those guys, man, you get your hands on those guys. And they were not going to see that happen with Durant. And they were willing to leave over it and did. Yep. Uh, I mean, literally, we, 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 we cashed in our chips at the, at the sign of blood. And, uh, you know, that is, um, uh, I mean, I, I got to think that that's got to haunt President Clinton. I, I have to think. I don't know how, how it couldn't. It doesn't. But it is just, uh, it, it's painful. Like, that's. That is painful. We're talking about human lives where, you know, we're talking about, you know, sons and daughters, the whole nine yards. But when you witness it, it's not just a cliche like American sons and daughters. You look at it like these are these are great, great, very courageous men and women that that are serving. And, yeah, we, 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 we changed our entire foreign policy, you know, uh, over that one incident. And then if you recall, just to go a little further um, you know, just northwest of, of Mogadishu is this country called oh, Rwanda. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, they're knocking off the Hutus and the Tutsis, one another, like the national pastime. And we don't do shit. We did nothing. Zero. Like they would go in at night and like lop people's heads off by the thousands, thousands, like four places and then a decimal. And, uh, you know, we did nothing. We Haiti burning people with tires around their necks and three knuckleheads with a baseball bat turned a whole seventh fleet around. You're like, what are we doing here, man? Yeah. Same thing I mean, with Darfur, right? Yeah. Right. Yep. But you get some shit goes down in Croatia and those are white people getting killed. So, <laughs> you know, Clinton's all in. Yeah. And look, I mean, I, I'm glad you think he, he loses sleep over what happened in Mogadishu. I think he loses more sleep over Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> That's just, you know, and, and not that he's any better or worse than what we've had since on either side, really, because I have to think that, you know, George uh, II or Dick Cheney would have leveled the entire country. <laughs> um, Trump may, may may have done the same. I mean, we want something in between. I mean, I think Obama would have done the same thing Clinton did. There's just there's nothing in the middle. There's no middle ground to our policy. It changes every four to eight years completely. Yep. Yep. No, you, you know, and I, I'm shaking my sort of shaking my head in a circle uh, on that because you're absolutely right. And and then listen, I, I certainly don't have all the answer. I mean, we all like to think what we think we know and about this. But there's also this point where you, you just have to say, I mean, what what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And, uh, you know, how does this this what does this do for the good of America? And if we're going to be in, we got to be all in. And uh if we're not, if we're just going to change our minds every four or eight years, um, uh, what do you just put a cap on our timeline of, of you know, military involvement? Um, like, hey, no more than four years. I don't know. Um, but you're right. It's wasteful, wasteful of brilliant lives. It's the commitment issue. It, it, you have it right there. And, and you know, the, the media will play their, their fainted horror over 
one incident and uh rumsfeld said it best when in that one uh, uh interview when they were asking him about the i think it was the what the daisy cutters they're like you know you're using these bombs then they kill people and he was like it's war you kill people yeah i mean he was <laughs> he's a douche but he, he, was, he was right more eloquent and sinister than that, uh, <laughs> on that on that comment like yeah somebody was yeah when they were asking about daisy cutters because they are effective but yeah i mean i do want to hear your opinion man i think most people do want to hear your opinion for for what you went through and so so i appreciate you giving it well thank thank i didn't mean to get on my my little soapbox so at the end of the day you know we we'll always, we always are gonna need um, men and women that are that are going to run to the sound of gunfire. We we will we do because there's evil out there. Legitimately, I mean there there are some really really bad actors, either individuals or states that are are in orbit around us, and somebody's got to do it. But it's 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 hard, and we haven't figured it out. We're great at starting, but we're not good at ending. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we're not great at nation building. Oh. That's, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, we could take Baghdad in a, in a week or two, but, you know, who wants to run it? Who wants to stay there and rule it? And that, that's not our business. And when you replace a dictator and just give somebody democracy, they're like, well, what's this? We just wanted a better dictator. <laughs> we wanted the one we like. Yeah. Yep. If you don't fight and die for democracy as, as, as a thought and a way of life, then you're never going to appreciate it the way we used to anyway. or some of us still yeah. do. I mean, listen, you know, General Powell, who um, had some really great moments and some not so great moments for sure. I'm kind of a fan of his. You know, he he did. He tossed out that, that back in 1993 on his way out. He was chairman. Yeah, you break it, you yeah. pay for it. And he's like, you know, if, that we expected Jeffersonian democracy just to, <laughs> you know, pop yeah. up was was mistaken. And like that was 28 years ago. And how many how many times have we been thinking like, man, like you just said, we're, why don't the Northern, why don't the Taliban, why don't the Northern Alliance, why doesn't Jaysh al-Mahdi, why don't any of the, why don't they listen? Well, it's none of our business in the first place is why they don't listen. We're only ever going to be seen as, you know, an extension of the Crusades in the Middle East forever. And they need to hash it out themselves. I think our foreign policy there is, should be rooted in thou shalt not fuck with Israel or we'll end you. Other than that, you know, deal with your own sectarian issues. Hopefully it's not violent, but you're just not going to take Israel because if for no other reason, they're the only functioning democracy in the Middle East. Couldn't agree with you more. And oh, by the way, like, give us some oil. About that? <laughs> and $4 a gallon is really starting to annoy me. Yeah. 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 That, that's my wife every single day. <laughs> calling her sisters about Biden. I mean, I don't know that it's his fault or it's not his fault, but like, you know, it's this, everything was Trump's fault, you know, to some people. So now, now, now Biden's got that whole thing going on. And as we sit here today talking to Matt, it's the day after the elections in Virginia and New Jersey. And it's just what we're talking about. Things are just going to now swing red. Is it better? I don't know. Probably better if you're a soldier. Uh, you know, I don't know. But it's it's some crazy stuff, you know. Just to wrap up Somalia, I, I I always wanted to know, Colonel McKnight, was he that guy that Tom Sizemore played that just never bent over, never crouched down, never hid from gunfire? No, because that seems no, like that'd that would be stupid. 
That was great Hollywood. That was uh, that was great Hollywood. Um, uh, no, uh, Danny McKnight is a uh, far more paternal, I would say, a far more paternal uh, leader than the guy Tom Sizemore, you know, portrayed. Definitely far more of a thinker than anything. But uh, most people are more of a thinker than Tom. You know, you got to have it. You, <laughs> you got to have that in a movie. Um, some of these these you, the borderline caricatures. But yeah, that was that was all. That was Hollywood stuff. I'm glad they did it because in the sense of Hollywood stuff, it was kind of cool Hollywood stuff, but I just couldn't help myself from thinking, dummy, yeah. you're, you're six, <laughs> four bend over. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like get behind cover something. helps, you know, get behind something that's going to block bullets. That's a good thing. But Colonel McKnight did do that. He got behind something. <laughs> okay. And, and you said there were seals there too. So this, this kind of, debunks a little bit of i don't know if it's a myth or the idea that seals and delta don't operate together they're either one or the other in this case these these were seals and delta operating together yeah i mean you know the, this you had ranger seal delta guys and test force 160 all put together in under one you know little task force so uh and certainly that was 1993 you know and Think about the last 20 years. I mean, throw in foreign special operations, uh, you know, and listen, this is all open source stuff. I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, giving any. We just call them all operators now, right? Yeah, that's, uh, it, that, that is it. And now, listen, I, I, I you know, I, I know it's not quite as simple as how we're chatting about it. But, you know, that that habitually, you know, this has been a kind of certainly on the soft side of the house is we're running hard, man. We, we gotta, you know, for survival, you know, figuratively, we, we've gotta have more bodies and more well-trained bodies and you can't just turn them out of that factory. So, uh, sort of by necessity, I think you, you kind of had to do this, but you know, back in the early nineties though, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of this, you know, army Navy kind of, you know, friction and like, you know, down to which, which company or which squadron or which this is going to go and whose turn is it for the next real world mission and all that kind of uh, stuff, which it's a lot of ball sniffing and um, <laughs> politics involved and who's going to, who, who, who's getting the, the sticky end of the, the lollipop. All right. Yeah. Well, well, which guys were tougher, the, the Delta or the, uh, the seals? No, the Rangers, of course. I mean, that goes without saying. <laughs> how, do, how do you not see that coming? How do you not see that? You didn't even include Rangers, and the guy's a Ranger. <laughs> you just, you know, <laughs> I mean, really, ER nurses. That, yeah. That's number one. And then the Rangers. There you yeah, go. They are, I tell you what, though, they are tough. They, they're, there's, there's back to that whole thing. There's, um, you know, one of these, uh, there's a quick anecdote to that to that point. Um, one of these nurses is married to a, a Marine that had, you know, deployed. I don't know where he had deployed to, but they were, you know, she'd had a really shitty day and um, he was sort of being a knucklehead. And he's like, well, you know, you don't know what it's like to, you know, scrape your buddy, you know, off the floor of a Humvee. And she's like, motherfucker, you didn't know what it's like to scrape a two-year-old, you know, out of a, uh, off of a gurney. Uh, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know. I, I mean, like you and I were talking before the show and um, a, a little bit and, you know, I, I shared with you, we're both dog lovers, right? And uh, that I had lost both my dogs within two months, a couple of months ago, and it just devastated me. Now, that's me. I'm, you know, you know, I, I'm not you. 
and I didn't go through the Battle of Mogadishu. And, you know, it, it surprised me a little bit. You, you said the same thing happens to you. Like you, not that you don't care deeply about the loss of human life, but the loss of your pets were, it was just as devastating. Oh, yeah. And I know that to every listener, you're like, man, what? I can't believe I'm hearing this. And, uh, but it really, it's, it's just this, this numbness to that kind of, you know, when you hear about death, it, it almost, uh, you know, logically, you know, this is bad, but emotionally, it's like, I, I think, I, I, I think my tears are gone. I don't think I, I have, I don't, I think from Somalia I actually started it uh, to, I think I, I don't have, I just don't. Um, but my pets, I just break down like a, like a two-year-old. Isn't that something? It really is. I, I, I'm sure that there's some, you know, psychologist that would tell me what's, you know, there's a log jam up there someplace that you got to figure out. But uh, it's just, it's, it, I've, I've noticed it over time. And you hear, and I, you know, thankfully, you know, this hasn't uh, been any uh, kind of that inner circle of friends, but, you know, there've been certainly more than, than a few good friends uh, that have passed away and you know, like you're sad for them, but it's not like you start crying uncontrollably. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a strange phenomenon. It really is. Yeah. Well, I lost a couple of Rhodesian Ridgebacks and uh, yeah, you would have thought that uh, <laughs> you, you would have thought I lost my best friend in Mogadishu too. It was a, it's crazy. And it was interesting to hear you say that too, that like compartmentalization that you have for different kinds of loss that you're prepared for. And then there's loss you're not prepared for, which will just physically and emotionally affect you differently. It must be, it must be quite interesting to go through that and, and then, and then realize 20 years later, okay, I've still got that, that gene functioning. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And it's, I must admit, it's just one of those, you just, you know, just sort of choose to, you know, accept it and kind of keep driving on. And again, I'm saying that, Dan, not to, I'm such a tough guy or anything. It's just, no, you uh, are you know, like, listen, the I, way it, it is. Yeah. It, it's a, it's official. I mean, you got <laughs> dropped in the Bakara market and thousands of Somalis were shooting at you. You can go ahead and say you're a tough guy. All right. I mean, like <laughs> it could be 20 years ago, but they're outside of a few dozen others who were with you that day. And, you know, God bless the 19 that didn't make it. I mean, I don't know how many were wounded. You were one of them, right? Everybody was, everybody came out of there wounded. Thankfully, the only thing I had uh, got messed up on me was my hearing. I bet. <laughs> but yeah, we had uh, like, I, I think it was, it was like 70, 70 something wounded. Um, it's a lot. There's a lot of fighting. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. That's uh that is, uh, that is, look, it, it's, it's a wildly interesting story. I'm interested to hear what you've got coming up after ER nurses about your business. If you, you know, maybe wrap up telling us what you have going on. Uh, you're, you're retired from the military now, right? After how many, you, you actually went to Iraq and Afghanistan, right? So it's not like when you uh, I was an Iraq guy. I, I was in Iraq for uh, the surge from uh, 06 to 07. And uh, then I retired in 2008, thankfully. So I only had, I was only I only had to do one. And my my visit to Afghanistan uh, was as a was as a you know a, a chubby civilian. So 
you know, I was like, hey, this is yeah. kind of weird going back to a, a, a war zone with no gun. But yeah, no, 20 years, three months and a couple of spare days uh, on active duty, which uh, was uh, blessed for it. Loved it. Um, even in the bad days, the military was good in the army. The army was good to me. Um, yeah, no, I, I got no regrets about it. Not zero. The surge, um, but yeah. transition challenge. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that in a sec. But but the surge, I just we got to give it to McCain. He single handedly made that surge happen when we were about to leave. Now, you can you can say that, you know, we should we should be gone now and I would be one of those guys. But but had we had had we had left in that moment, it would have been really, really bad. And McCain, who was not a war hawk, really was like, this is just math. And and he really pushed that and got it done. Is, is that the way you saw it, too? Well, it was weird because I honestly I, I I wasn't tracking who who was our uh, who was the big proponent since I was already over there, um, you know. And the, the weird thing was that was announced on CNN. And my wife knew we were gonna um, be extended because of this surge before we knew on the well, ground in Iraq, which like. There's something fundamentally unsound about that, but um, well, if I'm no, over there, I'm happy to hear more people are coming. Yeah, no, no there's no doubt because Fallujah was still a shit show, right? Oh my gosh, a whole country all over the country. Uh, that that was a um, man. We could spend a lot of time dissecting the whole philosophy of of Iraq and the debathification and you know the Wolfowitz Bremer. You know, there's just a lot of yeah. What did you think the Bathists were going to do? Did you think? Did you? Think yeah, they were- <laughs> I mean, like, well, check out, go for some ice cream. I, I'm like, what, what, you, what, what were you thinking? Truly, would they would do? And um, yeah. again, it's one of those uh, a couple of young corporals over a couple of beers and a cocktail napkin could come up with a little better. Hey, corporal, what do you think's going to happen if we fire all of the military? Every and- one of them. They don't have anything to do. Who, what do you think they're going to do for money? Uh, TikTok, hmm. who knows? Probably go and, and who would hire that? Jeez. Yeah. I mean, seriously, this is where it comes down to. That's exactly what happened. You know. I'll tell you, my grandfather was born in Mosul. No kidding. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, wow. I'm half Assyrian. As you may know, the, the Iraq war was uh, thorough in wiping out the rest of the Christians, the, the Assyrians and Yazidis among them. But here's an 80-some-year-old guy just saying, you're never, you're never going to, what are you going to win? What, what is there to win? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you'll never leave. You'll never get out of there. I mean, he spent 50, his first 50 years there. Wow. So wow. he called it in 2002 and, and three when it happened. He's just like, this is a huge mistake. And I thought he was a crazy old man. Now, look, we just took that in two weeks. What are you talking about, you know, Grandpa? I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. You took what? <laughs> what did you take? <laughs> yeah, you're never going to leave. And then you're going to get rid of the entire military. What do you think they're going to do? And they should have, you know, uh, I, I think Cheney and Rumsfeld and Bush should have called him and asked his opinion. Yeah, absolutely. My gosh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, again, I... I just you hear that and it just incenses me um and listen i i'm a guy to 
quite candid. I, I believe in strong defense. I'm a big. This wasn't defense. <laughs> I, I probably am a hawk. You know, I, I really probably that's that that is me. Me too. But, but this wasn't defense. Um, it was just you know I'm I'm reading sort of in the same church, different pew. Uh, there's a book out now called First Casualty, and it's about you know the the early uh, CIA teams that go into Afghanistan. It's really I'm only about thirty pages into it. Mm-hmm. But the history of Afghanistan and the explanation of, you know, these these tribes and these uh, alliances and broken alliances and that have happened all throughout time in Afghanistan, you know, nothing's changed. Oh. You know, I mean, literally, did, did, did anybody study any of this stuff before we got started and just think like, no, you know, anyway, I, I'm sorry, I'm just throwing out gibberish. It, it, people don't realize that. Uh... Imperial powers basically drew up lines on a map based on Gertrude Bell's little expeditions in the Middle East, but the strongest tribes got a country. The House of Swad got Saudi Arabia. Hashemite Empire of Jordan was 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 given to um, King Hussein, and and so on and so forth. But these were these were lines drawn by the French and the English that. To this day, Middle Easterners, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong, you were there, but they only really respect these lines during soccer games. <laughs> Other than that, their tribe uh, and their people mean more to them than their country and their religion, whether they're Sunni or, oh, yeah. or Shia. Listen, uh, I mean, one of the generals, and I don't usually like to give generals too high, too high a mark, but uh, <laughs> one of the generals over... Um, you know, in Afghanistan, you know, he said it exactly right. He said, you know, these people are living in houses built with baked bricks like Moses made. They've never been across the mountain. Straw. And like, that's it. Like, you know, yeah, we laugh and chuckle and snort, but that's that is it. That is 100 percent it. How do you how are we going to kind of cajole them into this? Whatever it is that we're trying to do, I, I I don't I don't know, but apparently we think we can do it. And like you said, we haven't done a Marshall Plan lately, but um, you know, one one of these days. Well, yeah, I mean, I I I think that Marshall Plan really hurts us because it because it it worked to a degree in after World War II, and it's never going to work in the Middle East. And you know, it's like you say, when you're raised with ignorance, the only information you have is your education. The only education that a a, a lot of people have there. Once they they moved away from universities like they did in Iran back in the uh, 50s, 60s uh, in Iraq is is, you know, what they're being told by their mullah. Mm-hmm. So and and at the madrasas and the schools and whatever. So it's it's a tough situation that um, I'm I'm not keen on losing more American lives over. Not my decision. I think, you know, our biggest issue right now, if, unless you disagree, is probably, you know, China, Russia to a degree. And we need to really think about protecting our own hemisphere at this point, because they're leapfrogging from Africa, where they've they've gotten a lot of headway through their belt uh, and road policy. And now they're getting over to South America and they're going to fuck with us in our own hemisphere the way they think we do in theirs or we do in theirs. Yeah, no, I'm just making a note of that because you just hit hit me with this whole belt and road thing. But yeah, you're I think you're absolutely right. And, and if I. I would nod my head uh, vigorously to everything you said. And my only bolt on, you know, is unfortunately, but I, we sort of touched on it earlier. I, I think we got to keep our eye in the rearview mirror, no matter how unpalatable it may be that that 
we've got to be watching what goes on in the Arabian Peninsula. We got to watch the Middle East. Um, you know, this is uh, this sounds cliche. Throw something at the screen, but this idea that we create that vacuum, we yep, it gets filled. Create the terrorist uh, playground, and you know who's going to be the one that feels good about holding that bag. You know, I mean, you hope it doesn't happen. You you, you just I hope none of it happens, but. Uh, I would be really, 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 really unbelievably shocked if something didn't originate over in Afghanistan that bleeds out into, you know, us or our allies and it'll be something kind of bad and, you know, hope it doesn't. But but you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a nasty place, this pebble we call a planet. It's going to. Yeah, it's going to. It's going it's going to happen. And uh and, you know, the Chinese are just are just interested in commerce. You know, you think that Iran or Afghanistan and Islam is so important to them. You think they don't know they have Uyghur Muslims in prison camps. They know. But China doesn't screw with with them and how they run their country. And that's the Faustian bargain. Right. So we can just do commerce. Yeah. It's a tough situation. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that they're going to be more Matt Eversman who put their lives on the line for us. Some of them won't come back. I appreciate that everything you've done. Tell us what you're doing now and what you got planned on the future. And love to have you back when you're talking about uh, a new venture. Yeah, no, well, well, thank you. And it's always good. To, it's always good to end on a, a, you know, a little something, a little lighter, a little, a little more upbeat. Um, but right in a moment. Yeah. Well, you're not exactly a Broadway actor, pal. So. <laughs> no, you know, I, like, I'm not, we're not going to sing show tunes throughout this whole thing. It's going <laughs> to, that, exactly. that's the hand you were dealt, Matt. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, I, you pitched some good fastballs and I like it. Um, no, Jim and I are working currently working on another book uh, about law enforcement, which cool. is uh, absolutely fascinating. Go to Minneapolis. Yeah, it is. Yeah. No, I've talked to cops up there. It's um, it's really quite remarkable. So that that I don't have a date for that one, but we're still interviewing. And, uh, you know, we got that to look forward to. Um, as far as I, my 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 real time job, you know, and you're very kind to announce it at the beginning. Uh, my wife and I started this this little consultancy called Eversman Advisory, which um, really was born out of frustration of this transition experience from you know, active duty to the new professional life. And, you know, three jobs in 10 years left me very frustrated. Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, how come, how come this is happening? How come my, my uh, shelf life is about three years and then I either get fired, the company goes under, or, you know, it's not a love connection. You know, I realized that I was, uh, the long answer, not so long was, uh, you know, I was chasing money. Uh, to to keep up with a lifestyle and instead of chasing, um, you know, an opportunity or uh, I don't want to say passion because I think that gets overused, but, you know, looking for something that I really... Something fulfilling anyway. Really was interested in. And, you know, nobody really taught me that lesson, let alone how to follow and find myself in this new world and this new identity. So my, you know, before we, we went back to let's go find another job that I'll hate. Um, How about sharing some of these lessons learned, you know, with soldiers so that we can, you know, shorten their, their learning curve or maybe make it steeper, I guess, but shorter, 
you know, get all this stuff out there, teach them what they need to know so that they can be more competitive out here in this real world, which I think a lot of them can. You know, again, we talk about what is a 26 year old, you know, team leader in Mogadishu or Afghanistan or, you know, Jalalabad do. Uh, they can do a lot. And uh, so we got to kind of help them find their way. So that really is a very broad overview of, of what we've done. Um, I've, I've, I've been always intrigued with this idea of emerging leaders, you know, and, and military or not, but the young professionals, how, how do we, how do we take the lessons learned from the special operations community and the military, which arguably, while not perfect, is really pretty doggone good. And how do we transfer that out here to these young men and women that, that didn't serve, you know, for whatever reason, but we could, we could help not quite recreate, but we could take the good of the good and put it into them so they could come be, you know, as successful out here as, you know, a Delta or a SEAL, Carl. I mean, they could be one of them too. And, uh, you know, but be top of the steer. Not an actual SEAL, Carl. Not an actual SEAL. My, my nephew uh, just graduated from Ranger School, so. Oh, good for him. Awesome. Oh, oh wow. Takes after his father's side, I take it. <laughs> No, definitely no. Okay. <laughs> so this is good for I mean, anybody listening that's maybe getting out of the military and finding a transition that's rough, as Matt did. They can reach out to you, I guess, and um, and get some help. Yeah, listen, we, we, we look, I always say yes. You know, I always say yes to, to helping anybody, you know, about whatever it is they can do. And, you know, it's, it's not a silver bullet. Wasn't that Eversman Advisory? Yeah, you can just Google it or go on LinkedIn, either one. And, you know, it's, I'm not hard to find. Okay. But, you know, again, this, this is, uh, you know, we just, we don't teach you that. Nobody teaches this. And it's, um, it's important because you, the kids that have done so much, man, they just deserve another crack at a, at a, at a nice, you know, the white picket fence and, um, you know, dog in the yard. Like they don't have to suffer anymore. You know, they come out be competitive, get a good job and, you know, feel, feel rejuvenated and refreshed and excited about work. That's great. I, I mean, that, that, that needs to be done. I, I appreciate you doing it. Look forward to your, your next book about law enforcement, whatever categories you cover there. I'm certainly going to pick it up. Don't, don't read it in a police station though. Don't, don't read it while I'm being arrested. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We'll do <laughs> We'll do. I'm sure a lot, of, a lot of people would love to see that. Ask the corporate world, <laughs> right? There you go. Thank you very much, Matt, for joining us today, for everything you've done, for the stuff you're going to do in the future. I, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I didn't get a chance to watch the movie with you, but I felt like I kind of did. So hopefully the audience did too. Any, any final words on how to reach you, Twitter? Do you have uh, social media you want people to? No, I'm the worst. I, I'm the worst salesman i'm a jackass social media annoys me to no end to be quite candid i'm not trying to be a curmudgeon totally but, agree totally agree but yeah no linkedin or just google it you you, you can get me okay yeah you know listen the, the, i would just toss this out and this is my last and i'll shut up but the there's so much good in this country you know there is so much doggone good in this country yeah you only got to spend about five seconds in any of these other places that we've talked about to realize this is a pretty great place, this land we live in. And uh, 
you know, don't just don't forget it. And, you know, whatever side you're on, it, it really unless you're the really like evil side. But if you're you know, that's what makes this country great. And, uh, you know, just be civil. But uh, this is uh, this is a great place. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, if uh, you're a lawmaker from Somalia and, you know, you're complaining about our country, you should actually tell people what it's like in Somalia. <laughs> yeah. Or, or Matt will. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. All right. Exactly. All right, man. Everybody, you know, I, I hope you felt like you were there a little bit. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a comment, give us a retweet. If you didn't enjoy it, move to Minneapolis or Somalia. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, leave us a comment. Give us a retweet. Follow us on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. I speak English. Yo hablo español. But FCI brings us together. From document translation, interpretation, transcription, and voiceover to any of your linguistic needs, FCI helps the world communicate in one single language, yours. For customized language solutions, call 610-438-8900 or visit us at fcitle.com. FCI, the language experts, making the world connect.